All right, please turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. Uh, We are going to continue our series in the book of Judges today. And this is a rare thing that we have two in a row. So thankful for this opportunity that Brian allowed me to have. This is our eighth time in Judges. And this time we're going to look at Judges 10, the end of Judges 10, into Judges 12. Now kids, if your parents uh, would like for you to have one, uh, there is a coloring sheet back by the sound table. Uh, I'd look, the picture I wanted fit more with the judge's violence theme, but I couldn't find it, so it's not, not like that this time, parents. We've had some of those throughout the series. So last time, we started the story of Jephthah, uh, but we never even uh, met him yet. Uh, we listened and watched as God confronted Israel about their sin uh, when they cried out under the judgment that they deserved We learned that God is a a jealous God. In fact, he goes so far as to say that jealous is his name. He claims that for himself. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for God, and it's a good thing for all those who trust him. But to unfaithful Israel, God went so far as to say these terrifying words last time, the words, I will save you no more. And he never does. Never again in the book of Judges, Does God restore Israel to a place of rest in the land of promise? So let's start reading in Judges 10, verse 17. And as we read today throughout the entirety of it, I want you to note all of the actions that God takes, the things that he does. So watch for those. Verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, this story requires some geography. Okay, So I'm going to help us all together this morning. So Gilead is a region to the east of the Jordan River, where several of Israel's tribes live. Most of the tribes live on the west side, and there's a few that live on the east side. The Ammonites have come, and they have camped in the region of Gilead, and Israel is looking for someone who is going to lead them to get these Ammonites out of Gilead. Okay? So that's lesson number one. So I want you to imagine with me the scene in Gilead. The Ammonites are close by, and so the leaders of Gilead have to figure out what to do. Okay, so perhaps, perhaps the leaders of Gilead are, are sitting around in a circle. Maybe they've put forward a, a few names as potential leaders who could lead them against the Ammonites. And then someone raises their hand, perhaps, and says, we, we, we could ask Jephthah. And maybe the room erupts with this mixture of, of anger, surprise, skepticism and excitement. Maybe, maybe some leaders want to ask him. Maybe others are completely against it. And, uh, and maybe some think that's a waste of time. There's no way this guy is ever going to lead Gilead. Now, maybe there's a few newer members of the Gilead Leadership Council, and they're confused by all this uproar. I mean, who is Jephthah? Like, who is this guy? And so maybe one of the older members kind of stands up as, as the commotion dies down and He explains. For those of you who don't know, he says, 
Jephthah is admittedly a great warrior. And so on that account, he would be a great choice to lead us against the Ammonites. And it's true that Jephthah is technically one of us. He is a Gileadite. Okay? And you hear this scattered mumbling and murmuring and grumbling amongst the group. However, however, he says, his mother was a prostitute. And so he is not a full Gileadite. And so he, he was not of honorable birth. And so his brothers, Jephthah's half-brothers, years ago, they refused to share their inheritance with Jephthah, and they threw him out of Gilead. And the council here supported that decision at the time. And since then, he's been living somewhere out, way out there in Tob. And from what I've heard, the group he leads is made up of some pretty worthless characters. Okay, so all those in favor of, of inviting Jephthah to lead us, raise your hands. All those opposed, motion carries. All right. Now, of course, we don't, we don't know how this went down. All right, that was complete imagination. All right. But it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened. Okay, look at Judges 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And so that's the backstory. Now back to the Ammonites. Look at verse 5. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Verse 6. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to him, or said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. All right. Now there's something I want us to notice about the way that Israel treats Jephthah in this story and the way that Israel treated God last week. If you can think back to last week, last week, Israel rejected God to worship idols. And this week, we see how Israel has rejected Jephthah, right? Or at least initially did. But now, in both, both stories, Israel is under stress, and so they ask God to save them, to deliver them in desperation. And in the same way, they're under stress, so they ask Jephthah, the one who they had rejected, to save them. But God, last week, he, he pushed back on Israel because they had rejected him. And Jephthah, in our story today, pushed back on Israel because they had rejected him. But Israel claims they've changed, right? Now they're ready to serve God. We saw that last week. They're ready to serve God. And this week, they're ready to accept Jephthah, right? 
So you see the parallel between how they treat God and how they treat Jephthah. What does that mean? Two things. Number one, the parallel means that each one helps us understand the other, okay? which seems to confirm what we argued last time, that Israel's turning back to God is most likely not genuine. The people are just desperate with no other choice but to trust God, just as they are desperate with no other choice but to trust Jephthah. And second, the similar way that, that Israel rejects both, both Jephthah and God means that Israel has a very dangerous habit. Israel has a dangerous habit of rejecting the ones who can save them. And you can see right where that's going to lead ultimately, right? To the day when Israel rejects her Messiah. When Israel crucifies Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on human flesh, who lived in righteousness as, as if Israel never could, and who suffered death, the death that Israel's sins deserved. Israel has a dangerous habit of rejecting the one who can save them. But today, you have an opportunity not to make that same mistake. God created you for his glory, and you have rebelled against him so that, like Israel, you deserve God's punishment. Do not be like Israel and reject the only one who can save you, the only one who can rescue you from your sin and the punishment you deserve, the only one who can save you into eternal life. Do not reject Jesus Believe in him today. Now, Israel eventually realized they needed God, and they realized they needed Jephthah. And if you've never trusted Christ, my prayer for you today is that you too will realize that you need him before it is too late. Don't reject the only one who can save you. Now, as, as the leader of Gilead, the new leader of Gilead, Jephthah begins corresponding with the enemy, trying to understand the reason that they have come and are ready to attack Israel. So let's look at the king's response to Jephthah in chapter 11, verse 13. Jephthah has reached out and says, hey, why are you guys here? Look at verse 13. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. So why is Ammon threatening more? Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Okay, so this is, this is a land dispute, right? This is all about land. And according to the king of the Ammonites, when Israel came up from Egypt, they took his land. Okay, now, the land in question is outlined in red. It is from the Arnon River in the south to the Jabbok River in the north and to the Jordan River on the west. Okay, look at verse 14. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to him, okay, and I'm not going to read everything he says, I'm going to summarize it for you. Okay? This is what he says. He says, let me start, first of all, he says, by correcting your history. When Israel came into the land, we asked Edom if we could pass through their land to get into the promised land, and they said no. So we asked Moab if we could pass through their land, and they said no. So we went out around both Edom and Moab and camped just on the other side of the Arnon River, and we asked the Amorites if we could pass through their land, the land you're trying to take away from us. And rather than let us pass through, the Amorites fought and they lost. And that is the true story of how Israel came to possess the land that you're trying to take from us. But, Jephthah says, 
I also want to point out a couple other things. Okay, first, the disputed land belonged to the Amorites, not the Ammonites. There's a difference. It's not you. Okay, so why are the Ammonites trying to take it now? It was never your land. Okay, it was the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Secondly, he says, we live here because God gave us this land. Our God gave us this land. Just like you have the land that your God gave you. Okay? Our claims are the same, even though we all know there's no other God. Okay? And third, the king of Moab, whose land the Ammonites seem to have control of right now, he never fought with us about this, so why are you doing what he didn't? And finally, Jephthah says, we've been living in this land for like 300 years. If there was a legitimate reason or claim against this land to take it from us, why has no one done anything about it until you came along? Okay, this is completely unjustified. Okay, verse 27. Jephthah finishes his speech and says this. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Okay? So, so not surprisingly, Jephthah was unable to convince the Ammonites to go away. And so this means war. Okay? But if you were reading carefully, you noticed that Jephthah wasn't appealing only to the king of the Ammonites. To whom else did Jephthah appeal in his letter to the king of Ammon? Okay? Did you see what he called God in verse 27? He referred to the Lord as the what? The judge. Okay? What's the name of this book that we're in? The book of Judges. Okay? And the Lord is the judge of all judges. Remember how the, the judge of Judge Deborah, she would sit under what was known as the palm of Deborah, and she would, she would decide in disputes between Israelites, making decisions for them. Well, Jephthah here is pointing out that, that God has the authority to judge, to make decisions and disputes between nations, like, like in a land dispute between Israel and the Ammonites. He has limitless authority to judge. He is the judge of all the earth, who, who always makes the right decision every single time. And he has all the power to enforce his decisions, bringing down the wicked and raising up the righteous. And when he leads his people against evil, he always wins, every time. Now, Jephthah was by no means a righteous sufferer like, like Job or like Jesus, for sure. But Jephthah has proven that the Ammonites' accusations against him and his people are wrong, and their attacks, therefore, are unjustified. And so Jephthah knows what it's like to be one of God's people facing uh, hostility, facing unjustified attacks from the wicked. And in this one moment, at least, Jephthah is a model for us a model for us of the right response. And that is to put our cause in the hands of God, in the hands of the judge of all judges. Now, whether Jephthah's faith rose to the level of, of all that it means for God to be the judge, we don't know. But there's a good chance that this declaration of God as the judge is the reason that Jephthah is included in Hebrews 11 and noted for his faith. After all, he is the only person in the entire book of Judges to make this kind of claim about God. And God responds positively to his claim. The king of Ammon totally ignored his message. Okay? It had no effect, but God did not. 
Jephthah appealed his cause to God, his case to God. He put himself and Israel completely in God's hands in this situation. And look how God responds. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Now remember back at the beginning this morning, I asked you to note every action that God takes in the story. Have you noticed any yet? Okay. This is the very first one. He has been uninvolved explicitly in all that's gone on. Obviously, he is always at work, but he has, he has done nothing in the story until right now. Jephthah says that he is the judge, and God's spirit goes upon Jephthah. God shows mercy to Israel. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. Now, I wish that verses 30 and 31 were not in the Bible. Okay, I wish that Jephthah hadn't done this. Jephthah is on his way to fight the Ammonites, and the narrator takes us inside Jephthah's mind. And I don't want to go there. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now this vow that Jephthah makes raises a lot of questions. A lot of questions. I'm sure you have a lot yourself. There are not a lot of vows like this in the Bible. Usually you just vow to dedicate this to the Lord. Okay, but Jephthah's vow is different because he adds a condition to it. He says, if God does this, I will dedicate this. Jacob made a vow like this in Genesis 28. But the vow we're probably most familiar with that is like this is the one made by Hannah in 1 Samuel. She was a barren woman who lived in the, uh, toward the end of the judge's era. And she prayed to God and saying, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Now, some people accuse Jephthah of trying to manipulate God okay, uh, with this vow, and that's possible for sure. Uh, but to accuse him of that confidently, we would need more than just the vow itself. Okay, since we have other examples of people who, who in distress make similar uh, conditions and promises to God, I mean, we would never accuse Hannah of trying to manipulate God with what she said. And so I, I don't believe we have enough warrant to say that this is manipulation on Jephthah's part. Other people accuse Jephthah of, of making an unnecessary vow. Okay? According to verse 29, the spirit of the Lord is already on Jephthah. Okay? So, so there's going to be victory over his enemies. If you look in the book of Judges, when the spirit of the Lord comes on somebody, they're victorious. Okay? So in making this vow, was, was Jephthah kind of grasping for extra reasons to be confident okay, when God was already with him? The problem is that we don't know whether Jephthah knew that the Spirit was already on him. We're not told if he knew that. Okay? Knowing what we know, was his vow unnecessary? Absolutely. But he may not have known what we know. Okay? And so again, I don't think we have sufficient warrant to confidently accuse him of, of the kind of weakness or, or hesitancy or fear that we saw in Gideon. So what can we accuse Jephthah of? We've got to accuse him of something, right? Okay? That's a good question. We'll come back to it. All right. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Verse 33. And he struck them from Aror 
to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. We don't get many details about the battle, okay? Jephthah is not remembered for his battlefield heroics. Apparently, all we need to know is that Israel won. Verse 34. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now, that's the first time that you have read Jephthah's story you're probably alarmed that one of God's judges would commit child sacrifice. This is truly one of the most shocking moments probably in the entire Old Testament. Now, it's so shocking, in fact, that some people suggest that Jephthah didn't kill his daughter. Instead, they argue that he dedicated her to the Lord so that she remained unmarried and celibate and a virgin for the rest of her life. After all, you know, why is she so grieved by her virginity? Shouldn't she be more grieved by her death? Okay. Doesn't her grief over virginity fit better with a life of celibacy? Or, and and why, is, why is this ritual of the women of Israel never mentioned again in Scripture? Perhaps because they marked this celebration or this remembrance every year only until she died. And then there's the fact that Jephthah is famously listed in Hebrews 11 as one who is notable for his faith. If he had killed his daughter as a sacrifice to the Lord, how could he then be famous for his faith? And yet we need to be careful how we think about the people listed in Hebrews 11. Their faith is notable for sure, but they did not make this list because they are perfect. Gideon, another judge, made that list. Now, if you, if you know only the, the famous part of Gideon's story, then it probably makes perfect sense to you that he's on that list. But if you know the rest of Gideon's story and how he led Israel in idolatry and false worship, then his inclusion is more surprising. The same goes for the person listed in that list right after Jephthah. This person was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And his name was David. He made the list. And there's another judge whose inclusion in Hebrews 11 surprises us. Samson is in Hebrews 11. Yes, Samson is included there. If there is room for Samson in Hebrews 11, then there's room for someone who trusted God as his judge, but who also made the serious sin of child sacrifice. And if Jephthah offered his daughter as a sacrifice, 
And the women of that era remembered her death each year. Perhaps, perhaps they stopped this yearly ritual because God's people turned back to him, which we know began to happen near the end of Judges, during the time of Samuel, and certainly in the days of David. And, and why, why wouldn't she grieve her virginity? Okay, her, her father's only daughter is going to die childless. Her death is going to make her virginity permanent in a day when offspring and descendants and family line are everything. Now, if Jephthah actually killed his daughter as a sacrifice, then that would put him among the most wicked saviors in the Old Testament, which means that he would fit perfectly right between Gideon and Samson. The farther you read in the book of Judges, you'll find that a child-sacrificing judge sadly fits in perfectly. In fact, if you've, if you've never read the last five chapters in the book of Judges, you need to read them today. And after you do, you won't have any trouble believing that a child-sacrificing judge was a part of this history. Now, we do want to learn from Jephthah's failure. So what did you learn? Okay. Maybe, maybe don't do that. Okay. Is that a good one? Okay. Maybe don't vow to God that you will sacrifice your child. But how many of us, or for how many of us, was that kind of something we thought about this last week? Okay? Does anyone kind of lean that way? No. So that, that application probably isn't all that helpful. All right? What's striking about this part of the story is the fact that Jephthah thought God would be pleased by the promise of a child sacrifice. That's what's so striking. And the response of the community in, in remembering this year after year seems to imply that everyone around him thought the same way he did. But where would Israel get the idea that, that God would be pleased with something so heinous and so evil? Okay? For sure, it came from the people that lived around them. I mean, God had, had warned them that the people that lived around them would, would burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. The fact that Israel is now engaging in this, the fact that it's, it's acceptable in the land of Israel is, is shocking. This is so twisted, it seems unimaginable that someone who is noted for their faith would, would think to, to integrate child sacrifice and the worship of Yahweh. But evil always has been pressing in on God's people, and it continues even today. Even today, God's people face constant pressure from this world to, to adapt our church life, our family life, our personal life, to accommodate, to affirm, and eventually to celebrate evil. Jephthah's failure is a, a cautionary tale to resist this pressure, to let the ideas that are birthed out of this old creation's rebellion to determine how we worship God. Well, I wish that was the end of the story of Jephthah. It doesn't get any worse, but it also doesn't get any better. Okay, look at Judges 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and you didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Okay, there's a few, few things here. Okay, first of all, Ephraim is a very large tribe, and they live on the, the west side of the Jordan River. So they had been less affected by the Ammonites' aggression into Gilead. But some Ammonites had crossed over the river and attacked them. 
So Jephthah's victory was, was good news for the tribe of Ephraim. And the second thing we need to know is that this is not the second time, or excuse me, not the first time. This is the second time. Not the first time in Judges that Ephraim has, has gotten angry about the extent of their involvement in Israel's battles. The first time was, was when uh, there were no Ephraimites in Gideon's army. Now that time, Gideon was able to, to calm down the Ephraimites, uh, but he had to do that by, by downplaying what God had done through his little army. And, and this made them feel better. Okay? They felt much more comfortable and, and better about themselves, and so they didn't, they didn't hurt Gideon. Okay? But look at Jephthah's response. Verse 2. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So Jephthah's response is, I called, you didn't answer. All right? Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they, Ephraim, said, you, you men of Gilead, are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. A little, little trash talk, a little animosity there between the tribes. Verse 5. And the Gileadites, led by Jephthah, captured the fords of Jordan against the Ephraimites. Okay? I didn't really competently know what a ford was. Okay? A ford is a place in a river where you can cross over. Okay, that's a ford. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So the battle between Ephraim and Jephthah's soldiers takes place on the, the east side of the Jordan River. Jephthah wins this battle and captures the strategic part of the river where everyone likes to cross. Right? And Ephraim needs that part of the river to get back across the river to their homes. So now you have Jephthah's soldiers guarding the crossing point of the river. But when soldiers come to cross, apparently Jephthah's soldiers can't tell for sure whether these soldiers are from Ephraim or not. And so they come up with this, this test because apparently, also, Ephraimites struggle to make the sound shh. Okay? And so when soldiers come to cross, Jephthah's soldiers ask them to say the word shibboleth. And if they could say it, they weren't from Ephraim, you can go across. But if they only said sibboleth, this confirmed that they were from Ephraim, and so they were killed. Which means that Jephthah is now the second judge to kill Israelites. Gideon was the first. But what I really want you to see from this battle is something about the Ephraimites. Twice now, Ephraim has shown that they refuse to celebrate God's victory even when it benefits them, if they are not involved. Ephraim can't be happy about God's salvation because they don't like the way that God saves. Ephraim really wants to be a part of their own saving. They really want to save themselves. But this attitude of the heart goes directly against the way that God loves to save his people, doesn't it? It goes, it goes directly against God's grace. As one author said, we all secretly love a gospel that relies on us. 
We love being the hero. Self-reliance feeds our self-esteem and self-worth. But Ephraim's sorry state here at the end of Judges 12 shows us the danger of self-reliance, the dangers of rejecting the gracious, God-centered salvation that he provides. And now, we're probably quick to agree that that salvation is by grace. We're, We're quick to agree that when we turn from sin to Christ, We had to put our faith only and completely in Jesus so that our our right standing before God uh, was based on his work alone and nothing we did. We, We agree that we added nothing to our salvation. And yet over time, even as we we see the grace of God at work in us, saving us, rescuing us from old sinful desires, freeing us from old sinful patterns and, and reshaping in our minds old sinful ways of thinking, over time, we can start to mistake those gracious changes of God for our strengths. We see this when we think things, we look at someone who has failed, and we think things like, I would never do that. I would never do that. How could they have done that? Or maybe, maybe when trials come, and our first response is not to turn to God, but to ourselves and our wisdom, or maybe when life is going really well, and so we neglect him and his word because we, we got this. We got this. Yes, our confidence for our eternal salvation is completely and solely in Jesus Christ. But for the day-to-day stuff, we like to think of ourselves as the hero. I want to encourage us today that God's saving work includes not only rescuing us from his wrath in the end, but also his work is the, the growth that we've already seen in Christ's likeness in our hearts and the growth that we hope to see by God's grace going forward. And so I don't want us to be like Ephraim and, and miss out on the blessing of what God has done and will do for you by making yourself the hero of your own story. He is the hero of your story. And so let's all lean all the harder on him. Now, Judges 12, verse 7, last verse. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Now, I have a question for you to finish the morning. What do you remember most about Jephthah as a judge? Think about it. What do you remember most about Jephthah as a judge? Did anyone think I remember most that he defeated the Ammonites. Nobody remembers that. Because even though Jephthah won that battle, Jephthah's time as a judge seems more like a loss, doesn't it? Starting with Gideon, the judges are now better known for their failures than for their successes. In fact, Israel needs someone to save her from her judges. Someone who can save Israel not just from evil nations out there, but from the evil that is within them. Someone who doesn't have these huge spiritual failures that overshadow the salvation that he brings. Someone like Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is not a savior like these judges. 
that he suffered and died not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people, for our sin. Think that he lived perfectly righteous so that we, by faith, can have righteous standing before God. Think that he died as the perfect righteous sufferer so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. We pray today that you would guard our hearts from the kind of self-relying attitude that we saw today in Ephraim. That we would see the growth in our lives that you have gifted us with, not as opportunities for pride or overconfidence in ourselves, but opportunities for thankfulness for how you have been at work in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.